Yesterday morning, working together at, as a church family, just doing some work here around the building. Uh, some of it you, you see right away when you come in. A little, uh, the, the building's a little more sparkly. The, uh, the, bark, or the, uh, the mulch uh, is fresh. Uh, some of it uh, is, is not as visible, but just as beneficial as that uh, the, the landfill in Enid uh, grew a little bit more yesterday because of our work. So I'm very grateful to those uh, who came and were part of that. And just as, as Harold said, we're looking forward to a, a great Sunday together. Uh, next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter celebration, two services, 9 and 11. And then uh, this Friday, uh, we have a special Good Friday service at noon. One other announcement uh, is that this evening uh, at 530 uh, the, we will be uh, giving a, just having an all-church meeting, all-church family meeting for us uh, as elders to be able to update you, the church family, on some things that, that, that we've been working on, some progress uh, that we have been making in, in some different areas. Just want to be able to communicate with you as a church. And then uh, following that meeting, our uh, Peru team is going to be serving us ice cream. And so that'll be a great way to end our time together. You'll get to hear a little bit more about what uh, is going to be going on with our Peru team this year and an opportunity for you to be able to contribute to helping that team get down to Peru. As we prepare to hear from God's word, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I ask that as we open your word, that you would show us wonderful things. I pray that your word would be faithful to be a light to our way, a lamp to our path. That you would turn our eyes to you and be everything that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus makes three different rides, three different triumphal rides. Today, as Palm Sunday, he makes a a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And one of the things that's distinctive about that triumphal ride is that it's, it's an unexpected triumphal ride because he's, he's coming into the city of Jerusalem and he is presenting himself as Israel's Messiah. But he isn't coming into Jerusalem as a conqueror on a war horse. He is coming in humbly on the colt of a donkey. And he is surrounded not with armed, regimented soldiers. His entourage is much more simple. Common pilgrims. And yet... The crowd recognizes who Jesus is presenting himself to be because as Jesus is making this ride into Jerusalem, they are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah and the people recognize it. They want him to save them. That's that word Hosanna, save now. They want salvation, but they don't want it on Jesus' terms. And so in less than a week, this same crowd turns on Jesus and cries, crucify him. The triumphal ride into Jerusalem. 
There's a, another triumphal ride. It comes at the end of the book of Revelation as, as Jesus rides again from heaven to earth this time, entering into the world now on that conquering horse with the flashing sword, the many crowns on his head, and he will work justice. He will have vengeance on all of his enemies, and he will reward all who belong to him. He will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and his kingdom of peace and justice will never end. There's a third ride, a ride that takes place in between that triumphal ride of humiliation and that triumphal ride of glorification. There's a triumphal ride of exaltation, a triumphal ride that Jesus makes because he humbled himself to death. God the Father exalted him and Jesus ascended into heaven. And this morning, I want us to look a little bit more at that triumphal ride, that triumphal ascension. So turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read verses 8 through 10 this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you can just grab a Bible out of the chairs in front of you and follow along with us on page 977. Page 977. Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In a few minutes that we have together this morning, I want to show you three things from this text. First of all, I want to show you a problem raised. There's actually a problem that gets raised by this text. I want to show it to you. And then I want to attempt to solve it with a prophecy fulfilled, and then finally, a preeminence established. So first of all, a problem raised. Now, if you look at this text, if you look in verse 7, it says that, that each one of us has been given grace as a gift according to Christ's gift. And Paul wants now to, to assure us, how do we know that we actually have received a gift of grace from Christ? He quotes Scripture in verse 8. Now, if you have a, a footnote in your Bible, you'll notice that there's a place in the Old Testament where this quote actually comes from. And it comes from Psalm 68, verse 18. So if you want to turn over with me to Psalm 68, I want us to look at that text. Psalm 68, verse 18. In Psalm 68, 18, 
it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men. Some of you might want to flip back to Ephesians and just compare. The problem is pretty obvious. Psalm 68.18 has a minor change from you to he, but then we see it says in Psalm 68.18, receiving gifts among men. Yet here in Ephesians 4, Paul says he gave gifts to men. So, there's a little bit of a problem here. Paul is saying that he's quoting from the Old Testament, and yet it looks like he changed it. Now, this isn't just a minor piece of trivia for Bible scholars to go away in their closets and their, their back rooms and get figured out. This is something that matters for us. That, that Paul is an apostle, but he is a spokesperson for God. He doesn't have the right to just say what he wants to say. He must say what God has told him to say. And so why is it that God would have Paul say something different in Ephesians 4 than we see in Psalm 68? Why would, did did God really allow his word to be changed? And here's why it really matters for us today, is if if we can't trust that, that God preserved his word within the covers of scripture, how can we have any confidence that we can rely on God's word outside of the covers of scripture? So this matters for us. It matters for us what Paul is doing with God's word because it it matters, can can we really trust that when God says something that it's going to last? You see, Paul is saying you can know that you've received the gift of God's grace because of scripture. And so we want to know, how is it that we can really rely on God's word? This is is the problem raised. What's going on here that that Paul would say, take the words received gifts and change that to gave gifts? There's been many different solutions that have been proposed, and I'm not going to go into all of those this morning because I I believe that, that the best solution is the one that's most helpful for us, most practical for us. And so I I want to to be able to show you from Psalm 68 what's really going on here. This was something that, this was a a solution that was was first carried, or or it was was maybe not first carried, but one of the first teachings on it was uh, by a church father named Jerome back in the the 400s, early 400s. He was one of the first people that actually translated the scriptures from Greek and Hebrew into the common language of, of his people. That when we, we, so the, the problem that is raised is really found a solution in, secondly, a prophecy fulfilled. I want us to look a little bit closer at Psalm 68 together. Because I think what Paul is doing is Paul is teaching us this is how you really read your Bible. This is how you really understand God's word. See, if you look at Psalm 68, verse 1, it says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. That there's this expectation in this psalm that God is going to get a victory on his enemies. There, there is an expectation being raised that God is going to 
be victorious. This is a hope that we can all hold on to. That no matter what it is that, that you are, are going through, that you can hold on to the hope that God will be victorious. That, that is the hope that's being strengthened through this psalm. And so in David, in writing this, goes on to recount God's past victories over his enemies. It, in verses 7 through 10, that David is recounting how God led the people out of the land of Egypt and how God won a victory over Egypt and freed the people from slavery. And then over in, uh, in verses 15 to 17, in verses 15 to 17, he, he's talking about the mountains, the mountains as being the symbolic thrones of the gods. And he's saying it's Mount Zion, that mountain in Jerusalem, that is where God has established his throne. So David sees himself as the king ascending his throne, but he is really under the kingship of the Lord who has made his throne on Mount Zion. And but, but even though God has established his kingship, there's still more to be done. That, that there is still a, a further expectation of what God's going to do. If you look down in, in verses 20 and 21, it says, The Lord's, uh, our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. There's an expectation that there's going to be more deliverance from God, that there are still enemies of God. In verse 30, there's the the call out, rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. it's, it's building to this cry out to God to bring his final peace to the earth. Not only uh, a peace among warring people, but, but a peace in the whole created order. There is this expectation that God's rule is not yet complete, but one day it will be complete. So there's this tone that goes throughout this whole psalm. God is going to get a victory. He's begun to reign, but it's not finished yet. So there's a, an expectation. When is this going to happen? Now, part of the Lord's victory is that when the Lord gets a victory, he pillages his enemies, and then he shares his spoils with, um, with people, with his people. I mean, if you look with me at, at verse 18, that, that's kind of the, the crux of this we're looking at it's uh, you know we see him leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious that this is the lord now pillaging his enemies that he is now gathering the spoils and the expectation of every good king is that good kings share the spoils with their people david had done this that when david won victories he shared the spoils even with the people that didn't go out to war with him because they, he was a good king. And that's the expectation. Good kings share the spoils. And there's already uh, hints of it. In verse 12, 
it says the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. So there is already the indicator that, that there are people that are benefiting from the Lord's victory that in the past that the Lord shared his spoil with people. There's another place here where it talks about people sharing in the Lord's victory. In verse 22 and 23, the Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. It's kind of a gruesome text. The, the bloodiness of it there, but the point is clear is that God's people share in God's victory. When the Lord gets a victory, his people benefit. So, we come back once more to verse 18, where it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. There is an expectation that the gifts that God has received in his victory are going to be shared. So, so Paul and, and all of the New Testament writers, when, when they, uh, all of the New Testament writers look at what God has done in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, as fulfilling all of the, the promises that God made in the Old Testament. That's the decisive action that fulfills the promises God made in the Old Testament, that because Jesus died and rose again, God's promises are being fulfilled. So when Paul looks at this text, Paul looks at all of Psalm 68, he says, in Jesus, God's victory is definitive. That that in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, God has won the victory over his greatest enemies. Therefore, that text is being fulfilled now in the church. Paul isn't coming in here and simply changing the words of the text he is saying that what god did he what god had did in the past of gaining victory and sharing the spoils he is now completing in jesus so paul is saying there was something waiting to happen here in verse 18 the lord had received gifts but but they're not being spread yet And now in Jesus, the gifts are being spread. So the psalm and all of his expectation is being completed. Paul is is saying this this is how we are to fundamentally look at, at all of Scripture is how does this Scripture point us to Jesus and what God has done definitively in the person of Jesus Christ. So what what Paul is doing here is is he's not just changing the words of Scripture to make his point. Paul is saying, in Jesus, a prophecy has been fulfilled. All of Psalm 68 finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. See, what this means is that the problem that's raised when we compare the two Scriptures and we see a difference finds its resolution in the fulfillment of, in Jesus Christ, the prophecy that's fulfilled in him and what this means, what this this meant for the Ephesians, what this means for us is that there has been a preeminence established. The preeminence of Jesus Christ 
is established. That according to, to Ephesians 4, verse 8, you, you may want to, to turn back there with me. In Ephesians 4, verse 8, it says, <clears throat> He ascended, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Two things happened when Jesus made this triumphant ride into heaven at his ascension. He did two things. He, he led a host of captives, and then he gave gifts to men. In, in two weeks, we're going to start unpacking these gifts, these gifts that, that each one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ have received as the benefit of Christ's ascension. But the question is, who are these captives? that Jesus is leading. See, there, there's no person now that, that's greater. There's no power that's greater than Jesus. He is the victorious king. But who is this that he's leading? There's, there's been a couple of different uh, proposals for, for who this host of captives is. That probably one of the most popular understandings of who this host of captives is is that these were Old Testament believers, people that had believed, uh, had, were followers uh, of, of God, had, they, they trusted his promises, they were faithful uh, in the Old Testament, but Jesus hadn't come yet, and so when they died, they, they couldn't go up to heaven, and so they were, they were placed in, a, in another holding place, and so when Jesus died, he, he went to that place, and he, he got them, and he, he led them up to heaven. Well, there's a problem with that explanation is that that's not actually taught anywhere in the Bible. There's no place in the Old Testament that's, that says that when Old Testament believers died that they didn't go to heaven. As a matter of fact, Psalm 23. Remember how Psalm 23 ends? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David anticipated, I'm going to be with God when I die. And then, if you remember, in uh, the story of, uh, of Elijah, Elijah is one of two people in the Bible that had never died. And what happened? Second Kings chapter 2 says that a whirlwind came and took Elijah, where? Up to heaven. James chapter 5 says Elijah was a man just like us. And Elijah, living in the Old Testament, he went up to heaven. So it, it doesn't seem that we can really believe these, these captives are Old Testament believers. Besides, they're called captives. If they really belonged to God and they died, who captured them? See, when, when I was studying this, this was the, the decisive point. Is that It says that he led a host of captives, but the verb there literally is he captured so Jesus captured captives. Every time that I saw that this verb is used, it's actually talking about an enemy. So what this verse is, is telling us is that Jesus, to show that he was preeminent, he actually captured Satan and his demons and all the forces of evil. That he subjected them to him. We see this uh, in another place in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. It says, he, that's Jesus, 
disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, there's two mistakes that we can make today. One mistake is to really discount any idea that we have a spiritual enemy. To, to dismiss the idea that there is spiritual forces that are at work in this world. Spiritual personalities. We, to deny that. That's one mistake to make. However, there's, you know, Satan is, Satan is called the God of this age. He is called the prince of the power of the air. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you go to the zoo, I don't recommend crawling into the lion cage. He's in a cage, but he can still do a lot of damage. We have a real enemy. That real enemy is the devil. He is a roaring lion. But as one of my seminary professors was fond of saying, that Satan is not just any devil. Satan is God's devil. Meaning Satan is on a chain. When Jesus died, he dealt a decisive blow to Satan and Satan is no longer free. That Satan is on a chain completely under Jesus' control. Jesus has established his preeminence over Satan. Jesus is far above all rulers and authorities and evil forces. So the second mistake that we can make is, is that, that we can make a mistake of forgetting that Satan and the demons are defeated enemies. We can give them far more power and far more far more attention than they deserve. They are defeated. Jesus defeated them at the cross. See, when, when Jesus went to the cross, he, didn't die, he did not die only to forgive you of your sins. He died to free you from the power of the devil. He died to defeat Satan. This means... That when you come to Jesus as your Savior, you are no longer under Satan's authority. Satan has no authority over your life. The, the demons, the forces of evil have no authority over you when you belong to Jesus Christ. This is where we begin. If you are here this morning... And, and you have not come to a place in your life where you have acknowledged that Jesus is the true king, that Jesus is your king. If you have not submitted your life to him and called out to him to save you, you are under the authority of Satan. You are in his kingdom. But to come to Jesus, to, to place your faith and trust in him is to be delivered out of the dominion of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of Jesus who has all authority given to him. You see, one of the, the most damaging voices that you will hear is 
is the voice of, of Satan and his demons that are whispering accusations in your ear. Satan, in, in Revelation chapter 12, he's called the accuser of the brothers. And, and what one of you hasn't, hasn't heard that voice? Oh, you did it again. Yeah, I know God, God forgave you, but you're, you're still on the outside. You're, you're still looking in. Yeah, God forgave you, but, but God's really disappointed in you. Yeah, God forgives you, but he can't really use you. Those, those voices of accusation that the devil is wanting to accuse you he has no authority. He has no power and no claim on you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus died to defeat Satan, to strip him of his power. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34 say, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Oh, Satan will try. Satan will try to bring the charges, but but Paul is saying, who's going to do it? Why? Because it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus made a triumphant ride into heaven to intercede for you. And so, the assurance is yours. The preeminence of Jesus Christ means that this promise is for you. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers. I'm going to read that again. Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's love for you is secure in Christ and cannot be threatened by the attacks of Satan against you. And so, claim this promise. Claim the promise that is yours. In Jesus' triumphant ride into heaven, the promise of James 4, 7 is for you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He has no power when he is resisted by those who have the Spirit of God. He must run. And so, Remember the words. Remember the words of the song, a mighty fortress is our God. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning on, on behalf of my brothers and sisters, thanking you for the victory 
that you accomplished in your son Jesus, winning the battle for us against Satan and the the forces of evil. Jesus, we, we praise you as our triumphant king who has secured the love of God for us forever. I pray this morning for those who are here that have not believed the victory of Jesus Christ for themselves. They have not come to Jesus as their Savior. I pray that this morning would be the day that they are freed from the power of Satan to walk in the victory that you bought for them. That they would receive the gifts that you give to those who belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.